0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, anti-hate protesters and yellow vesters faced off at City Hall again on Saturday. Kim Jong Un and Trump met in the DMZ. Was it a historic event or just an empty moment? Also, now that the carbon tax is constitutional according to the courts, should we maybe not fight governments and instead fight climate change? The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. More events at City Hall on Saturday in the forecourt uh, with uh, dueling demonstrations, is maybe the best way to describe that. Uh, also, a, a course member on the show on Friday, we talked with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger after the uh, uh, attack, frankly, on his house, his private property on Friday, uh, and we got some reaction to that. Uh, also, the mayor made a move yesterday to try, over the weekend rather, uh, to try to set a committee up to try to get some people to talk about this and get everybody around the table. Uh, we uh, reached out to the mayor today, by the way, to join us to uh, give us uh, uh, need ideas to exactly what he wants to do and how he wants to accomplish that. He's unaf- unavailable, but I know we'll talk to him about that later in the week. Uh, Graham Crawford is available, though, history and heritage owner, active resident, and, of course, Hamilton Citizen of the Year, who has been very vocal uh, about this uh, on this program and, of course, on social media. Uh, good to see you again, Graham. Well, nice thanks for coming Bill in today. Ian, very much. I I was disturbed to hear about what happened on Friday or Saturday, rather, at City Hall. Uh, It was not as aggressive, apparently, but uh, there were confrontations. So this is a problem that's not going away. Yeah, I wasn't there. I
1: mean, I, I have to be honest. I have a slight disability, which you know about. So standing in the same spot for any longer than like five minutes, and I actually have a physical problem. In any case, Bill, I wasn't there. But what I do know is that the only altercation that happened was when one of the far-right people crossed over into uh, the defender's uh, side and uh, started videotaping people. And like I said to you when we we spoke last, you know, there's a reason people w- cover their faces, uh, defenders cover their faces, is because these far-right people like to get pictures of people and then they look them up on social media. Uh, they use face re- recognition software and then they they go after them. So uh, it it matters that he was videotaping. It's it's not. It wasn't. He wasn't just doing it for his own files. I suspect.
0: Well, the fact that it's happening and the fact that we have, as I mentioned, dueling demonstrations is somewhat problematic because that looks like a, an incident waiting to happen.
1: Oh yeah, no. They, you know, I don't want to overstate it. I don't. You know, one might say, "Well, powder cake." Look, it's very dangerous right now. But but most significantly, and and I hope your audience understands this, it's most dangerous for young people, many transgendered people, members of the LGBTQ plus community. It's dangerous for them on the streets, on the buses, anywhere near their homes. Um, That's why I'm so dedicated to doing something about this, Bill. I I mean, I feel very safe. because I'm just—I'm not going to be picked out unless it's somebody who's got my photo and has actually targeted me. Um, so I just want people to be empathetic. You used the word when I last talked to you—empathy. Yeah. Em- it's the key word here. Let's just feel for each other. Uh, and, yes, there are things that happen, and people use some, maybe some inappropriate tactics. I get that, and I condemned.
0: You did. I, I yeah. saw your post on social media minutes after we found out about the attack on, on the mayor's house. Yeah,
1: it, I did. Right? it was an attack. Well, it was the banging on his front door that got me the most because that's – that. if you're inside, you don't know what that's about. Putting up signs on his front lawn, if that's all they had done – it's a bit of theater. I, I mean, did it cross, would it, that cross? It was a nonviolent uh, uh, gathering. The problem is if you're sitting on the inside of the house like Fred and Diane were, they don't know that. They don't know when there's loud banging on the door. I think that was the crossing of the line. It's dangerous. And turnabout is fair play. If they weren't 20 um, members of the LGBTQ plus community, but rather f- the far right community, uh, you know, would you want them banging on your front door? Uh, at seven a m in the morning, I don't think so. So I don't it was not good,
0: well, and as I talked about on friday, uh, th- that there's a unspoken law. I mean, when you're talking about public officials, uh, their house is their house. And, and to, to bring that into it and to bring uh, the family into it, his wife and, and, and I don't know if any of the kids were home at the time or not, uh, but, but that being the case, uh, they're not responsible for this. He's a public official and, and he's been Correct. one for a, quite a long time and yeah. understands that there are going to be it's situations like this where there are going to be a lot of people that may disagree with a lot of the stuff he does or doesn't do as the case might be. But you don't take it on to somebody's home. And I, I said the same thing a few years ago when Ju- uh, F- Julian Fantino, who, lives in, who lived at that time in Woodbridge, uh, some protesters uh, about, about police activities decided to go and, and march in front of his house. It's, it's not the way to get anything done. It may draw attention to the fact, but it draws attention to how uncouth those people are, not exactly what's going on with policy. So <clears throat> that, was, that was a bad move.
1: Yeah, followed by many other bad moves, unfortunately. Well, that's but, what I want to talk yeah. to you
0: about today, and that's why I'm glad you were able to come in here, because I, I saw some of your posts over the weekend about some of your concerns. Uh, I guess one of the first things I want to ask you as a follow-up to, to your last visit here the other day, uh, because you were quite concerned about some of the things that the mayor has done or that you think should have done. Yeah. Have you had any dialogue at all with the mayor about this?
1: Uh, That we have exchanged. You're not a
0: shrinking violet, so I'm sure you –
1: Oh, yeah. No, no. In fact, Fred and I were direct messaging each other over the weekend, Friday in particular. Um, And, Bill, well, I won't read them out to you. Uh, I kept them. I screen captured them. Uh, Mayor Eisenberger's messages to me were vitriolic uh, to say the least – They attacked me and insulted me personally. They also attacked friends of mine, people who are active and concerned in the community, um, and he wouldn't let go. Uh, There were several of these. Oddly enough, they all happened Friday afternoon. I don't know what Caused the mayor to do felt he th- this was a good thing to do of a Friday afternoon, but very shortly thereafter, I received a, a an email invitation from Drino Mazic, his chief of staff, yeah. to attend uh, a meeting of members of the LGBTQ plus community, um, and it was it was pretty nebulous. It didn't didn't give any specifics. Just would you come? And I don't go to anything without knowing. <laughs> Nor, nor sh- would anyone generally, especially in uh, tense moments like this. So I contacted Dreena. I, I, sent her, uh, I, I left a voice message. I sent her an email on Saturday. I sent her an email on Sunday. And then on Monday, she contacted me. And we spent about 40 minutes on the phone. Uh, it was not very productive, to be perfectly honest, Bill. They have not done their homework. Uh, this meeting is very, very ill-conceived. Uh, how, how so? Well, first of all... <laughs> Uh, it's going to be held in the mayor's private boardroom. I mean, if you, like, community engagement with oppressed minorities 101, don't, don't hold it. Uh, don't force them to come to you. The mayor should have said, what space would you feel most comfortable in? And I'll meet you wherever you want, including my boardroom. If, if that's better for you, I'm happy to do that. But no, it's you come to me. Number two, I asked... Will this be facilitated by his two new appointed facilitators? The answer was yes. And the boardroom, as you may know, Bill, uh, I'm sure you've been in it uh, over the years, is going to hold maybe, I don't know, 10 people, plus the two facilitators, plus the mayor, and probably a staff member or two as well. Um, my question of, of uh, the chief mayor's chief of staff was what about his advisory committee? They have nine members. It's limited to nine members by the city of Hamilton. They, they could have more. They have not been contacted. And I asked why, and I was given some nonsense administrative thing about his advisory committee uh, counsel, uh, advises council, and this is different. I said, well, who's the head of council? And Doreena said, well, the mayor. I said, so you mean the committee advises the mayor, therefore, logically. Oh, this is different. I said, Drina, I'm not buying the spin. I'm sorry. Fred doesn't want those people uh, to be at the meeting. and He doesn't want to meet with them, so he has completely ignored
0: them. Yeah, but he didn't say he didn't want them there. That's an assumption on your part, to be fair. Bill, that is a fair comment. But let me ask you then. Just, <laughs> let, me, but, let, me, let me come at this from a different angle then. Who would you want to see at this meeting, which is supposed to be no happening?
1: No one. I declined to go. I'm not going. As I said to Drina, and as I will be saying on social media, I won't be used as a pawn by the mayor of Hamilton, by our institutional leaders. You
0: think that's that's what this meeting is then?
1: Yeah, it's a meeting with with the members of the community to, as Drina said, to begin to have the first conversation. I said to Drina, look, if this was uh, action number nine, maybe, maybe. But there's eight things in front of this that need to be done, not the least of which is the mayor calling an emergency meeting of the Hamilton Police Services Board to find out from the chief, what happened? Why did you do what you did? Why did you say what you did to Bill Kelly? What will we do differently next time? Why was this a mistake? What What did we learn? None of that has happened, and Bill, I don't think any of that is going to happen. Um, Fred also has not apologized for his comments. He's talked about fake queers. He did this on As It Happens. He did it on on CH. He talked about people who were there at Pride Day who were pretending to be queer. By the way, I get to say queer because I'm one of them. Um, So it's a word that's okay. Uh, But, Bill, as I said to, to, to Drina and to others, who do you think in this city at this time would pretend to be gay. It's way too dangerous. They're not pretending. It's offensive for the mayor to... He doesn't know that anyway, and it's a stupid thing to say. But he said it, and he said it on national media. Why, why would you do that? How does that help? It doesn't help.
0: Well, it doesn't. And, and this is the concern that I had, and you, I expressed this to you. Uh, I've talked to other guests about this, is <clears throat> one of the first things we have to have here is dialogue, and uh, we're not getting it. We're not getting it from anybody at this stage. We're still getting vitriolic rhetoric from, from, from different people here that's really seemingly inflaming the situation when what we're looking for here is, uh, is, I guess, the basic question. How do we go forward on this?
1: Well, Bill, look, there's the old politico in me, and as I've mentioned to you, you know this, but I've also mentioned it to your listeners. I, I've been a gay activist for 40 years. I, I've seen a few things, and I'm seeing the same things in Hamilton right now that I saw 40 years ago. Um, There are things that have to be done first. Uh, Fred Eisenberger has to earn this meeting, and he hasn't. The fact that Chief Gert has remained silent is a problem. The fact that Fred Eisenberger continues to insult members of the LGBTQ community. The fact that Fred Eisenberger, the mayor of Hamilton, ignores his advisory committee of nine volunteers who've taken of their time and energy to come together on a regular basis to provide him with counsel, he's ignoring it completely. Um, I know he hasn't contacted them because I've asked them, and he hasn't contacted them.
0: Um, but he has, he has made a move, and I want to ask you about that. You, you just touched on that a couple of minutes ago, uh, that he's invited two people from the community, uh, Cole Gately, of course, and, and Deirdre Pike, uh, to be liaisons, I guess, to try to first, you know both of these people. I certainly know Deidre. I don't know Cole. I know okay. who, he, who he is, but I don't know Cole. Okay, uh, good move, bad move. I mean, it, it looks to many people as well. This is an attempt to try, maybe that first step to try to get people together to start talking.
1: Well, it's the optics might be okay from where the mayor is sitting. I'm not going to comment on the two people because I don't think that's appropriate. I'm just going to comment on the me- the method, the the process. You don't ignore your standing advisory committee and take independent action and go rogue and pick two people you happen to know and like and say, these are the people the community will liaise with. Says who? Why? The mayor says that. Um, It's a slap in the face to nine volunteers of a committee who put in their names. They volunteered for this. They don't just show up. They had to submit profiles and so on. And yet they're they're completely ignored. So, Bill, it's a tactic to try to, in my opinion, divide further divide the community rather than bring it together. But it's wrapped in this conciliatory, collaborative rhetoric that is. I'm just not buying it. I'm sorry. I mean, and you know, look, I'm an establishment guy. You know, I had a business. I had you know, sixty employees. Yep. I'm, i you know, I'm, I'm not a radical. Uh, so
0: but, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus in on, on that, that one thing that's actually going to get somebody, and, and it's not going to resolve this, but at least start this dialogue and this conversation, uh, because clearly you're, you're not comfortable being a part of this yet uh, until you see some other things done. That's it.
1: That's the essence of it,
0: Bill. Y- yet, and I'll, I'll, I'll qualify that. Uh, the other element to this, though, is is you know your, your concern here about the, the advisory committee. Uh, sh- should the mayor invite them to, to this meeting or, or include them in this process, would that assuage some of your concerns? Well,
1: I think the, the question is, why did he choose to do it this way? Why would he choose? Well,
0: I, I intended to ask him that today, but as I say, he's well, please tied ask up. him. He's, he's tied I've asked in meetings him. apparently so he can, but he will join us. I, I, I'm going to continue to ask until we yeah, get him on here.:
1: He won't dodge it. I know that. He may select the timing, but he'll be here. I know that. But ask him, why? What was your thought process? Why did you think this would be a better way than going with the standing advisory committee? Um, I don't know what what his thinking is. Why did he think it was best to further inflame the situation with his home uh, by posting further videos and adding further comments? For example, one of the videos he reposted was uh, someone taking his Canadian flag. Okay, so that happened. It's probably not cool that that happened. But why would the mayor of Hamilton conclude that that would be a good video to retweet and post in the midst of all of this anxiety? You have to ask, what was your motivation, Fred? Why did you think that would help?
0: So you think that uh, we're just about out of time in the segment, unfortunately, Graham. But as as I said the other day when you were on the program, I mean, this is clearly uh, just going to continue, as we saw over the weekend. But you feel that the actions that have occurred over the, the weekend uh, are, are, are inflaming, not rectifying the situation.
1: They're dividing the situation. Bill, Lee, I, I know we have to wrap up. Where is Chief Gert? Where is the mayor? Why is the mayor and the the police services board, why are they letting Gert remain silent after the outrageous commentary he made on this at this table in this station over these airwaves? Uh, silence. And the mayor is not holding him account for that. And that is the, I would suggest, Bill, is one of the fundamental problems.
0: Well, like I say, we are attempting to talk to all of the particulars that you've mentioned here and to, and to try to get some explanation as to what's going on, and uh, we will continue to do so and we'll continue to liaise with everybody who's involved in this. Graham, thanks as always. I do appreciate the time, Bill. Graham Crawford.
2: (laughs) You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Halfway around the world, uh, there were some rather bizarre occurrences over the weekend. Uh, The G20, of course, was going on in Japan, uh, and there were some interesting meetings, obviously, with uh, the Chinese President and uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. But then, uh, to the surprise of many, uh, an impromptu meeting between uh, Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, of course, uh, from North Korea, actually on North Korean soil. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Benoit hardy Chatron an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us once again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. Good to have you. Let's uh, Listen, I want to talk about the North Korea situation, of course, but uh, just backing up just a little bit to the G20 meeting. That, that was almost surreal watching some of the events that going on. Of course, it, there was expected to be a meeting uh, between Putin and and uh, and the president, the U.S. president, and also between the Chinese president and Trump. But at the same time, uh, the, the, the the apparent insertion or attempted assertion anyway, uh, to make Donald Trump's daughter part of this whole process and part of the G20 meeting was was rather bizarre. Wasn't it?
2: Yeah, that certainly raised some eyebrows, and we've seen the videos of, uh, of Ivanka Trump uh, kind of you know mingling with the world leaders, and there have been some questions that have been raised since then as to whether or not it should be her place to do that. I mean, after all, let's remember that she doesn't have an official position within the uh, U.S. administration. So that was kind of bizarre, but at the same time it's the kind of thing that we have gotten used to when it comes to uh, the way the Trump administration operates abroad. There's a lot of things that we are starting after two years of the Trump administration of, of, of being used to, but it's certainly unusual in diplomatic diplomatic practice to see something
0: like that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen nepotism obviously in the in the Trump White House, but I mean, to actually have her included in the group shot of the G twenty leaders was was a, a rather you know surreal situation. So onward to, uh, we go to the the demilitarized zone and uh, this this meeting, which I assume, uh, we're, uh, from what we've read, uh, was rather impromptu. And and I guess the big question everybody's asking right now, Benoit, uh, was this actually uh, a, a history or is this just a photo op that the two leaders wanted to do?
2: Right, right, great question. First of all, about the impromptu character of this meeting, I do think that it truly was impromptu. Of course, there's always a small possibility that this would have been uh, planned weeks in advance. But from all you know, from all uh, indications that we have seen regarding the meeting, it was indeed prompted by the Donald Trump tweet, which I believe was on either Friday night or Saturday here in Tokyo time. Um, So, and by the looks of it, if you think about the circumstances of the meeting, if you think about the fact that it took, that it lasted only one hour, uh, this has, this bears all the hallmarks of indeed a meeting that was just uh, planned at the last minute. Um, However, if you look at how it, what transpired of the meeting, uh, it seems to be a meeting that had some positive effects in the sense that the last. Two weeks, and even more so, I'd say the last few months, ever since the uh, second failed Trump-Kim summit meeting in Hanoi, Vietnam, things were kind of going south. Where right? We have seen a, um, a, a, a an increase in tension, certainly not to the point uh, that we saw in 2017, when both countries almost, uh, you know, there were real fears of war back then but still the last few months were pretty tense we have seen a lot of impatience demonstrated by the north koreans they even started uh launching a few short-range ballistic missiles which went against um un security council resolutions um so really there was a need for things to kind of be put back on track so i think uh to that extent we could say that trump's decision to hold this meeting at least for the time being, to have reached objectives, and now it seems that they are going to reopen um, working negotiations on the nuclear issue. Because that meeting really was just about, it was not really about substantial issues. You can't, there was no, not enough planning for that. It was just about putting things back on track, uh, lowering tensions, and for the time being, again, it seems to have reached that objective.
0: The, the other question I guess a lot of people are raising about uh, the legitimacy of the meeting, though, Benoit, is, again, I guess, uh, you know, you're, the, 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 the entourage that actually crossed the border into North Vietnam and with uh, with the president. Uh, you know, no secretary of state there. Uh, the, the people that are usually involved in those sorts of discussions that, that actually have, uh, you know, something into the game here, you know, some uh, we're not there. Uh, who was there, of course, was once again his daughter Ivanka and Jared Kushner. Uh, and right. you wonder just, okay, they're not involved in this in any way, shape, or form, so was this really just uh, for the, the the optics of it, or did they get down to, to hearty discussions? I guess we don't know, because most of that was done behind closed doors.
2: Right, right. Well, the meeting was lasted about an hour, and we no, you know we don't know exactly the the nature of these of these discussions, but we know that if these agree to start talking again uh, to restart the working level negotiations with the head of the American negotiation team, as Steven Vegan. Um, but as far as the entourage, which I think you you rightly uh, just mentioned, um, it, it just shows that Trump seems kind of to be going his own way when it comes to the. North Korean issue. Let's remember that over the last few months, even the last year, generally speaking, there have often been pretty noteworthy contradictions between Donald Trump and uh, the people in his administration. He's always been kind of um, on uh, seeing eye to eye with uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. However, if you look at John Bolton, his uh, national security advisor, if you look at the previous Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, that, uh, who actually stepped down a few months ago in protest uh, against uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy, you see that there's just uh, there's a lot of times where you were wondering how, if, whether or not the kind of message that was coming out of the White House was not uh, in in the sense that unproductive because there's, there was not, there was just not a lot of coherence, co- coherence coming out of these uh, declarations often directly contradicting each other. Now again, uh, coming back to the, to the substance of this meeting, uh, you're right in pointing out that there are questions to be asked about the substance of the meeting, but going back to my previous argument, however, this meeting was not about, uh, really substance. It was, a lot of it was for show, no doubt, no doubt about that. Let's keep in mind that the there we're only one year away from the next U.S. presidential election. Uh, trump has already started his campaign, um, so not only was it to restart negotiations, but of course, it's something that kind of looks good in a way. Trump can trump that meeting as a kind of victory, as a foreign policy victory, and I think he sees any kind of advancement on the North Korean front as important to be scored uh, in, in in you know in in the running in the run up to the election because let's keep in mind that his foreign policy um, uh, record so far has been rather thin. There's not a lot of accomplishments here to show for. Us. So I think he sees the North Korean situation as not necessarily a low hanging fruit, but something on which he sees more potential for advances. I remain skeptical of those possibilities, but I think Trump sees it this way.
0: Well, obviously because he feels as if he's established a strong bond between he and and Kim Jong-un, and and we're not absolutely sure about how legitimate that actually is. Uh, You know, I, I his reference that they, too, fell in love. But uh, the Hanoi meeting tells you that there was a pretty severe breakup there. Uh, i, I got to ask you, though, because yeah, of uh, yeah. where you are in Tokyo, uh, and the the reaction that you're getting there, because I know when they started the missile testing again after that failed Hanoi meeting, uh, there was s- some concern about why they were doing that. And and I know that the, some of the speculation uh, in North America was that, look, they don't have the capability of actually reaching major targets in North America, so let's just chill out. But they certainly could reach targets in Japan, uh, which obviously is a very strong u s ally. and and of course the the President and President Abe have a pretty strong relationship right now. Uh, was there concern about what was going on in North Korea in in Japan and about the ramifications and that they could be a de facto target of of of, of Kim Jong-un's uh, angst, uh, obviously to make a statement?
2: Yes, absolutely. Let's uh, keep in mind that for from the perspective of Japan, not only from the perspective of the people, but especially from the government, uh, North Korea remains the number one threat to national security. Even though uh, China and Japan's relationships are always a bit of a concern, you know, China is a major military political power in the region and does uh, make the, uh, the Japanese administration of Shinzo Abe a bit uneasy. There's no doubt that North Korea ranks number one. It's always repeated, made very clear in all um, administrations, uh, political, official documents. Um, and therefore, that's why in the last few months, uh, their worries, I would say, have been increased in Japan, especially after about a month ago, or it might have been a little bit more than a month ago, when North Korea uh, fired a few short-range ballistic missiles. Because let's remember that even though there are some questions over uh, North Korea's capacity to reach the United States, sure, in November 2017, they successfully, uh, they seem to have successfully tested a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile there remains some question over the reliability of their missile systems, especially the long-range ones. However, let's keep in mind there is absolutely no question about the reliability or the the general uh, performance of their short- and mid-range missiles, all of which could potentially reach Japan. So it was pretty alarming about a month ago when when North Korea restarted these uh, ballistic short-range missile tests. And what was even more alarming from the perspective of Tokyo is the fact that Trump seemed to, if you recall, he seemed to kind of dismiss Japanese concerns about that. Although the Japanese administration, they were constantly, they, they, they were heavily critical of the North Korean moves. If you recall, Donald Trump said, yeah, that he wasn't worried at all, that he basically was not concerned at all. That was almost verbatim what he said about these, uh, these short-range missiles. So that's Risks creating a rift, some kind of, uh, strains or rift between Tokyo and Washington. And as you mentioned, Washington, uh, I mean, Japan is a very important, staunch ally for the United States and the region. It's an important ally, uh, that helps to establish the American presence in the region. Uh, they have 50,000 troops here in Japan. So having these kinds of risks or disagreements over North Korea I would say is a risky, uh, risky, a risky possibility for for Donald Trump. So they need to see eye to eye. Recently, they simply have not seen eye to eye. So we'll have to see whether or not uh, this goes in a way that Japan is Japan is happy or satisfied with. But any kind of lowering of tensions on the Korean Peninsula is going to be generally. Um, uh, taken with open arms by Tokyo.
0: I think your point's well stated here, that, uh, that Trump needs uh, to score some points, of course, on and when it comes to international affairs, uh, with the election coming up, of course, next year. And, and you're right, I, I think North Korea probably is uh, maybe the path of least resistance to, to score that. But, Benoit, how do you quantify success or failure with this? I mean, you know, the fact that they said they're going to begin negotiations once again, uh, I suppose is encouraging to a point, but is it going to be enough to actually you know, move the yardsticks for for the president when it comes to international affairs and, and foreign policy? Because they've, they've been down this road before. After that first meeting that they had, uh, Trump announced, of course, and actually yeah. bragged to a certain extent that, hey, they've agreed to disarm. Everything's going to be fine. And we know... From, from intelligence reports that they never stopped really and uh, and are continuing as you mentioned to do that today so uh, I guess the underlying question here is can can Kim be trusted in, in situations like this
2: um I continue to harbor many doubts over Kim's uh, intentions when when it comes to his uh, nuclear program I've repeated many times and I think even previously on your show I've said to you that, I believe Kim Jong Un really has no intention to denuclearize. I think he has many other intentions. One of which is the lowering or the um, lifting of sanctions that have been quite painful on uh, that have really hurt quite significantly the North Korean economy over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think uh, he intends to do that at all. When it, going back to your first, uh, your previous question, when you asked about what would be. A, uh, what could be considered successful when it comes to uh, the next few months over the Korean Peninsula? The problem is the Trump administration has kind of painted itself in a corner by consistently repeating that only full denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is going to be uh, is going to be acceptable for a lifting of sanctions. Uh, that is a bit of fool's gold. I don't think, as I said, that this is possible. They need to reassess the the, the what is realistic, what is not realistic on the Korean Peninsula. Um, I think what they need to have is have a much more flexible approach, maybe even settle for, uh, at least for the time being, more limited uh, moratorium, perhaps limited dismantlement of their arsenal, uh, because otherwise having a maximalist goal on North Korea is only going to result a perceived failure for the Trump administration. Because again, uh, the real intentions of North Koreans, they have truly no reasons to get rid of the nuclear weapons, that's the only reason why the international community has taken them seriously uh, ever since they started with our program in the 1990s. So when you think about it, uh, they see it as their only guarantee of survival. Whatever the U.S. says, it's going to be very hard to move the needle as significantly on that particular front.
0: There's, there's this disarmament uh, aspect in that argument. But the other one, of course, that's come to our attention over the last few months, and and you highlighted this for us and brought this to our attention uh, I think a couple of months ago when you were on the program, Benoit, is the discussion between North Korea and Iran right now and, and the sharing of technology, which should be troubling to the United States. And again, uh, the president has obviously got Iran in his, his crosshairs right now, too. Uh, do they throw that onto the table in these negotiations and say, "Look at this has got to stop?
2: No, I don't think this was actually on the table, but I'm glad you actually brought this up, because the issue of sharing of technology has long been a concern not only of the United States, but of uh, the international community as a whole. Uh, North Korea has a very long history of having established uh, kind of, you could call them illicit international networks in order to share not only nuclear technology, but as well as missile technology. And a lot of the countries with which North Korea has shared its, its uh, know-how and wherewithal are usually countries that are either Korea in the international community or countries that are not in the good graces of the United States. And that includes, of course, Iran. Uh, so Iran and, and North Korea have a very long history of sharing technology. They have pretty close um, military to military ties. Uh, So that is a worry of the United States. But there are no indications so far that this was on the negotiation tables or that this was part of the discussions that they have had so far. One of the other problems, too, when it comes to Iran and when it comes to the relation with North Korea is that Trump has seen, over the last few weeks, literally seems to have kind of manufactured a crisis with Iran. And you said that Iran seems to be in crosshair of Washington. That's true, but this is all because originally of the decision of the United States to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And just looking at it from that perspective, look at it, that, look, look at it from the perspective of Pyongyang. Are they really going to trust the United States on a nuclear deal, given the fact that the Trump administration decided to withdraw from an international agreement, six, a five-way international agreement that led to the freeze of the Iranian nuclear program? Uh, You can certainly ask questions over that, and I think that did not paint the United States as a reliable interlocutor or partner, and that's going to hurt them, I think, in terms of their relations and um, negotiations with North Korea.
0: Well, if these negotiations do actually come to fruition, uh, it's going to be very pivotal, obviously, and and as you mentioned, it's going to have a huge impact on the presidential election. Uh, Benoit, it's always a pleasure to get your perspective on uh, this very touchy issue. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Benoit Hardy, uh, Chartrand, of course, Adjunct Professor at Temple University in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, Japan, as a matter of fact. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. On Friday, we told you that the Ontario Court of Appeals has ruled now uh, on uh, the Ford's chall- Ford government's challenge rather to uh, the Trudeau government's uh, carbon program. And, uh, well, it was a four-to-one decision, and they said, no, that uh, the, f- the government was well within its rights to do what they did. Uh, that's the gist of it, anyway. It was a rather lengthy uh, explanation as to uh, why the uh, the court decided to go that way. Uh, now, mind you, the n- initial reaction from the Premier was that, well, we're going to appeal this, and, and we kind of anticipated that was going to happen. Uh, and we already know, because the government's been quite open about the fact that they've already budgeted $30 million in legal fees to take this court fight as far as it can go. But some are suggesting with the uh, decision on Friday, plus the decision against uh, the province of Saskatchewan a while back, uh, with their challenge, that maybe it's time to just uh, pack up and, and call it a game and uh, and figure, okay, that's the policy, that's the only way out of this. Uh, Steve Applin's going to join us. He is the publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy for use, and uh, a, a great resource when it comes to dealing with things such as uh, environmental policies and the impact it's having uh, on economies and on people. Steve, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Great to be back, Bill. Listen, you've had a couple of days to digest uh, the, the court decision, uh, and-, and it's interesting, as you and I talked about last week, uh, I know a lot of people are going to think that this, this whole challenge was based on what is the best way to do this, and you and I have talked about that at length, of course, about whether carbon pricing, cap and trade, etc. Yeah. But the essence of this decision was really the legal foundation, wasn't it, as to whether or not the government had the right to do this?
3: That's right. The, the, the court ruled that the government is totally within its right. It's not ruling on whether this is a good policy. That's a political question. It's a ruling on whether the federal government's got the constitutional right. Uh, unequivocally, it looks like yes, <laughs> and uh, that's, where the, that's where everything lies. But the, the other question, wh- whether it is a good policy choice, whether it's going to be effective at reducing carbon, which is what the whole point of the whole thing is, um, that's still to be decided. It's still something that is in front of the public. Uh, it's good that you and I are talking about that, because that is the meat of the question. That is the where's the beef question. If you don't have... Uh, sizable, dramatic, immediate emission reductions from a policy. Then that policy is probably not the one you should be going with, and that's what should be. Uh, that is what should be in front of the public right now.
0: But I read a rather interesting uh, op-ed piece about this over the weekend. I, I read dozens of papers, and I can't remember which one it was in. Essentially s- suggesting, as you just stated, that that is the essence of the argument here. Uh, but the, you know, the efficacy of the policy was not what the court was deciding on. But that may still be the key question for the public. But that being said, then why are they fighting this in the courts? Uh, this this is a political decision.
3: Yes, that, that's uh, well, that's an excellent question. I, I think that uh, that's kind of their legal fallback. You you always appeal something like this. But like I said, Friday, Bill, what's going to happen is is there be you know between the time that they develop their appeal strategy, uh, and and other meaningful uh, events occur in the Canadian public landscape, i.e., the election. Uh, there, we could get a change of government, then and the new government could very well rescind this, and the whole thing becomes moot. Uh, what I think you're talking about, uh, other commentators saying that, well, the government should move on, and that's certainly one of their alternatives. That's uh, certainly one of the things they should be looking at, and I'll wager that they are looking at it. And what the Ontario government could do and should do, in my opinion, is to dust off that uh, climate plan that we talked about back in, I think it was November of uh, 2018, and uh, buttress it up. Because there are some uh, promising uh, aspects to that plan that I that, that I thought were interesting and worth looking at, and I think the new uh, that the government, in light of this decision, uh, might want to uh, might want to revisit that and get um, more public out more public information out about how they intend to uh, reduce emissions that way.
0: And it's an interesting point, and, and it actually it parlays pretty much into what I was just talking about before you joined us, uh, about how the, the the Ford government seems to be hitting the reset button here with the, the cabinet shuffle that they did, and some of the new ministers that we've talked to already are, are suggesting that they're more than willing right now to modify, if not totally change, uh, some of the policies that clearly had an impact on the fact that their approval ratings seem to have dipped so significantly Sure. Uh, do you do you understand the thinking in your opinion that the environment ministry is is in, on that same track that they'll say okay listen hold on let's let's sit back and evaluate this or are they just going to go full spore ahead on what they've already planned?
3: Well, they they indicated that they're going to do the latter, but I think that they're really seriously thinking about the former. Just in light of all the other stuff that you mentioned, like they're they're not looking good in the polls, they're they're feeling a lot of uh, public opinion heat right now. And so, be sure, pushing the reset button, uh, they could they could say, you know, it was the old gang, the old sort of uh, uh, premier's office uh, uh, management, and they're all gone now, and we've taken a fresh look at this, and we're going to go in a new direction. That's all, perhaps, in the cards that'll be interesting to see. Uh,
0: especially in light of the fact that, uh, you know, there's there's options out here, and uh, I guess we always have to be careful and wary of the fact that uh, that when you and I are having these discussions, uh, that not everybody is, is is in tune with what's going on. Not everybody's right. read the documents. Not everybody's probably even read uh, the intricacies of the policies, even the federal policy, let alone the, some of the other proposals right now. Uh, right. So, so I, I guess the public is malleable at this stage. I mean, they're willing to go one way or another if somebody can convince them that that's the best possible plan. And I'm not so sure that they've done that yet.
3: No, nobody's done that. You know, that's exactly right. The, the, this question is absolutely wide open. About, in my opinion, about what, where to go in order to, you know, achieve those dramatic, deep, immediate reductions that we have to do. That we have to start now to do, if we're going to meet Paris targets by 2030, and if we're going to avert this two-degree warming thing that the, all the scientists tell us is coming, if we don't change our ways. So this is a, an absolutely integral part of the public discussion, and the public, you're right, is 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 quite open to what those, what those uh, alternatives are. We've got a couple of all very, very stark alternatives, renewables versus nuclear. One of them has evidence that shows it works. The other one has uh, a lot of popularity and support, but no evidence whatsoever around the world. And uh, a lot of proponents that are asserting very confidently that uh, renewable energy backed up by storage and conservation and, and uh, you know, all, the, all those standard environmental um, um, clichés uh, is the way to go, and there's no evidence to support this. It'll be interesting to get that kind of argument in front of the public. Should a one of the parties decide to take it there, on the you know green liberal NDP side, I don't see any movement there. I think I see the only possibility in with the Conservatives, and it'll be up to them to uh, sort of decide to take this tactic.
0: Well, as you and I talked about, I think, a week or so ago, uh, I, I know this is not the, the state of policy of the NDP, but the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Leap Manifesto is still out there, yeah. uh, and there's always a concern that, well, look at if we hand the reins of power to these guys, that element of the party is still there, and we don't want to go there. I, I, I think there's a, probably a consensus with the majority of the NDP party not to go there, but, but you never know in situations like this. So uh, that one has been ruled out. I think you can check that box. Uh, Andrew Scheer rolled his policy out a couple of weeks ago right now, and it received I think to be kind, a lukewarm reception at best. I mean, even some of the conservative supporters are saying, "No, it doesn't really. It doesn't get it done. It doesn't doesn't talk about targets." There's a lot of yep. and former Prime Minister Kim Campbell uh, and a number of other conservatives have actually panned the plan and said, "Look, it's that's not where we want to go." So we, the public, right now, Steve, are looking at all this information and there's a plethora of information, yep. pro and con to this, and saying, "I don't know where are we going to go? How are we going to do this?"
3: Well, the whole, my uh, the suggestion is simply follow the data. And if you follow the data and, and, and look closely at which countries, which jurisdictions have actually achieved these deep uh, uh, carbon emission uh, uh, cuts or have avoided carbon over, over decades, not just, uh, in the, not just anecdotally over a couple of years because of a blip and an economic cycle or something like this, but decade, decade after decade after decade have, have kept them low or have reduced them from a high point. Uh, you've got then you've got a the beginnings of fleshing out something that Andrew Scheer mentioned the last time, which is a technological approach rather than a carbon tax-based approach. Uh, that I fully agree with. I, and and as a matter f- as a matter of fact, I, I don't see that the two are mutually exclusive. If you take a technological approach and you could raise tax revenue to pay for the technology, then and and the technology demonstrably reduces CO2, then you're I always say cooking with gas is the wrong metaphor. <laughs> then, then, then you're, then you're, you know, you're moving along the way you should. So there's something there that I think that the conservatives could certainly do, which is to flesh out the technology part of their, you know, the technological approach that they're that they're mentioning.
0: But the fine line that they seem to be walking right now, though, Steve, is is I, I think they're basing what they're trying to propose here simply on the premise that it's not going to cost you anything out of your pocket. And, and I'm not so sure that you can do that. Uh, somebody's going to have to pay for this.
3: Uh, there's some there are some uh, uh, there are some regulatory implications to to what I mentioned and that uh, we'll use that as a euphemism for <laughs> some <fairly> some <laughs> significant changes. but uh, that that's right. I, I think that it could be achieved at at very low cost, certainly lower cost than any of the alternatives that are bouncing around in the public sphere. so there's there's that possibility it it just you will go down a road to, in my opinion, re-regulation of electricity and then you're going to see a hugely expanded role for local distribution electricity companies, because everybody's talking about the electrification of the other sectors that are not electrified right now, transport and heating. Uh, You electrify those. In Ontario alone, we've got a market that jumps from about uh, $25 billion annually with electricity to about $50 billion. Uh, LDC revenues double or perhaps triple. Uh, The the amount of energy going through the wires doubles, if not triples. Uh, That's very significant. That's something that is going to have to happen if we're going to decarbonize energy. And uh, that is a technological approach that jives completely with what Andrew is talking about. And uh, some public component of funding to either get it started or to sustain it, but at a a, a sustainable level, if I can can use that, um, also jives with the the proponents of the carbon tax. Carbon tax is not 100% bad if the revenues are used for something that is actually effective. Uh, my worry is that the, the revenues as currently envisioned are just not going to be utilized effectively.
0: And, and, and therein lies the problem when we're looking at these situations as to as to how they want to go on this. And it sounds to me as if a hybrid is, is probably the better solution here, but I don't see anybody going down that road.
3: I, I think that, that that's exactly what's going to work out. You're, you're right. Like, everybody's dug in and, and entrenched, but as everybody knows, politics is the art of compromise. So you'll see, we're already seeing... Um, um, the Ontario Conservatives backing off a, a really, really hard-held point, and uh, you know, when, when power's at stake and uh, and elections hinge on what you say out in public and policies that you develop, people have a way of changing long-held uh, positions. So it'll be really interesting to see. Like, we've got three months to go t- towards a federal election where this issue that you and I are discussing right now may be the linchpin to the election. So uh, you bet there will be Room to compromise, and there will be a lot of uh, wrestling going on, and, and uh, positions are going to change between now and October.
0: You know, it's interesting. I mean, because what you were describing here is a, is a possible solution with the obviously with the uh, leading more towards uh, electrical, which we kind of want to do anyway. I mean, everybody's yeah. talking around that. That's not a new idea. I mean, we were starting to head that way back in the 1960s. Uh, right. With uh, and all of a sudden, for some reason, Steve, we decided no, 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 no. We have a, a an un you know f- we have fossil fuels are the answer because we have an unlimited supply of the Stuff and and it's cheap and it's the better way to go. Uh, now we, we this is like you know this is everything old is new again. Now we're kind of going back and say, well, wait a second, maybe that wasn't the smartest decision to make.
3: That's right. Well, it's uh well Ontario is an absolutely fascinating test example of this whole thing because we went the absolutely well we we and the other nuclear jurisdictions of France and uh, the United States to some degree uh, went in the absolute opposite direction and had been leaning in that direction even before the OPEC oil crisis of 1973. So we went nuclear in Ontario, and we shielded ourselves for decades against the vagaries of fossil fuel markets. That's just gone. We don't have that. We don't have that problem in our in our electricity system anymore. Yes, we went back onto coal, uh, but we also went off that pretty quickly because we have the technology that allows us to get off it, which is nuclear. So that aspect of the technological and electrification thing, uh, you know, got uh, sort of garbled in the post OPEC oil crisis. Uh, Argument over energy and environment, but it's shaking back out. It's got to be electric Energy has to be electrified, and if you're going to electrify it, it's got to be done on a zero-carbon basis with something that's capable of providing bulk power, capable of uh, powering a province like Ontario. We're an advanced industrial jurisdiction. We've been that since the end of the Second World War. Um, There's one technology that's capable of doing this. You know my point of view. Everybody can tell, can hear me loud and clear what I'm what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But uh, but uh, this is backed up by data. This is what I'm hoping uh, in the next three months enters the public debate. Just great that you and I are discussing this because this is this is the type of discussion that has to happen, uh, you know, widespread out in the, out in the public. What is the best technological approach to cutting carbon? Not how many wind turbines can you build. That's the that's the defining issue. Hopefully, what I'm hoping to make the defining issue of the environmental aspect of this election.
0: Problem is, as you and I know from past experience and the number of elections you and I have both seen, is that uh, that may be the discussion that, that we should be having right now, yeah. but uh, the Liberals have their policy, the Conservatives yep. have their policy, and the NDP have theirs, the Greens have theirs, and they're looking at the clock and thinking, you know what, we've only got a couple of months, we are entrenched in what we're going to do, and we're going to yep. fight the battle with these infor- with this information and these tools, which is maybe not for the best thing for the Canadian public, but it's what we're going to be stuck with when we go to mark our ballots on that uh, on election day
3: that's absolutely that's that's correct have like i said on friday you've got a fastball pitcher and doug ford against a fastball hitter and justin trudeau doug ford says the carbon tax is nonsense justin trudeau says the carbon tax is the way we need to do this uh we'll find out on election day who's right uh and and like i said there's a there's a, it'll be interesting to watch this wrestling match this policy wrestling match see who climbs off the position, but you're right. It could just it could just regress back into what the entrenched positions already are.
0: And I, and that's another question. I know we're almost out of time here. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, if there was a change of government in October, uh, that pretty much settles the question because we already know where the conservatives are going to go on this. However, the other side of that coin is if the liberals are reelected, exactly. uh, does do the provincial governments look at that and say, look, at the majority of people brought these guys back in, let's just drop the fight.
3: That, that's probably what they'll do. You know, they're going to they're gonna take this to the next level to the Supreme Court. And, and you know, you, we discussed uh, the legal yeah. aspects of that on Friday. And that's, is that a sure win? It's, it's <laughs> 50-50. It's, uh, you're going to hang your, you know, and then by that time, uh, Doug Ford's going to be in re-election mode. So you're right. They're probably going to say, look, uh, we lost in the Supreme Court. Uh, this guy's just been reelected. elected uh, We're going to get endless questions about, okay, I'll, I'll just put it in exactly the way that you just put it. he was been reelected. It was over a carbon tax. He got reelected. People of Canada want the carbon tax. It, it, do, you know, work with that.
0: Well, we'll see. Interesting times. Uh, always a pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much for this today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you, Steve Applin, publisher of Mission Track. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.